Our text is Psalm 84, 1 through 4. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee. Beloved, the Psalms describe the experiences and even the emotions of God's children. And the text in Psalm 84 is something to which we can relate this morning. For five months since December 2020 and for many months before that in 2020, this has been, I trust, the cry of our hearts and the content of our prayers. We have longed for public worship. And this psalm, beloved, describes a time when the psalmist was deprived of public worship. And that was, as he expresses it, in this psalm and in other psalms, that was his greatest trial. Not to be away from home, not to be separated from his family and his friends, but to be deprived of and cut off from public worship. And while he was away from the tabernacle, as we shall see, his enemies taunted him. Where is your God, they said. To be away from the tabernacle for him was, they said, to be forsaken of God, so that he had no choice, they said, but to worship other gods. Recall how David spoke such words to Saul when he had been banished from the kingdom of Israel and had to live for a time among the Philistines. That was his great temptation, to forsake the Lord and to worship other gods. And by God's grace, he resisted that temptation. And in exile, he continued to long for God's house. And we can identify with that this morning. We have longed for God's house. And now we're thankful to be back Notice then, ardent longing for God's house. Ardent longing for God's house. Notice first the object of the longing, then the intensity of the longing, and third, the reason for the longing. The psalmist describes the object of his longing in two ways. First, he longs for God's house, and second, he longs for God himself. And these two ideas, God's house and God himself, are connected, are related. To long for God is, at the same time, to long for God's house. 
For the psalmist, God's house is a specific structure in a specific location. It is the tabernacle, which was first built in the wilderness, carried throughout the wilderness wanderings by the children of Israel until it finds a resting place in the land of Canaan. It appears in Psalm 84 that the psalmist is unable to go there, which intensifies his longing for that place. In verse 1, he speaks of God's tabernacles. Verse 2, he speaks of God's courts. Verse 3, he mentions God's altars. Verse 4, he speaks of God's house. And those four things describe or belong to the Old Testament tabernacle. First, there is God's house. God's house is the most general term. God's house refers to the whole of the tabernacle, which would later become God's temple. And that word house indicates that God dwells there. It's the place of God's special presence. In the Old Testament, God's glory filled that house, especially the Holy of Holies. And God dwelled there in this house, not because he needed to have a house, and not because he was confined to that particular place, but he dwelled there in order to be near to his people. And so in infinite condescension, God determines to be near to his people by dwelling with them, in the midst of them, in this house. God says in Leviticus 26 verse 11, And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And to express that more positively, God set his tabernacle among his people as a token of his love for his people, as a token of his delight in his people. Second, there are God's tabernacles. And this describes more what this house is. A tabernacle is a tent. The ark of God, says David in 2 Samuel 7 verse 2, dwelleth within curtains. And a tent has curtains. The tabernacle consisted of curtains. And a very thick curtain divided the different rooms in that tabernacle. And the word tabernacle literally means a dwelling place. It comes from the verb to dwell or to rest or to abide. And there are tabernacles plural because the one tabernacle was divided into different sections or rooms. There was the outer court, there was the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies or the most holy place. And each of those rooms or areas of the tabernacle had its own particular furniture and accessories all of which were necessary for the worship of God in the Old Testament. Third, there are God's courts. And the idea of a court 
is an enclosure. An enclosure is an area marked off or fenced off for a specific purpose. And to pass into a court, you enter through a door or a gate. And God's courts then are enclosures or is an enclosure set apart for the worship of God. We sing in Psalm 100, verse 4, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. House, tabernacles, courts, and then finally, God's altars. An altar is a place of sacrifice, the place of the shedding and sprinkling of blood. An altar is a place where animals are slaughtered and then burned as offerings to God. And there were two altars. The first was the altar of burnt offering. It was located in the outer court. And on that altar, lambs and bullocks and rams were killed. Their blood was poured out or sprinkled. And the carcass of the beast was then burned on the altar to ashes. And then the second altar was the altar of incense. And it was located in the holy place. And the priest would take some of the hot coals from the first altar, the altar of burnt offering. He mixed those hot coals with a carefully prepared concoction of spices. And then he offered that on the altar of incense so that a cloud of sweet-smelling smoke called incense ascended into heaven. These things... God's house, God's tabernacles, God's courts, God's altars were the objects of the psalmist's longing. Now think about these things further for a moment, beloved. These things were not particularly beautiful from an external point of view. Aesthetically pleasing, they were not. The tabernacle was quite ordinary. It was basically a tent located in a large courtyard. And the activities that took place in the tabernacle were not particularly pleasant. Think of the butchering of animals and the sprinkling of blood and the smell of burning flesh. Would you think that to be something pleasant. And yet the psalmist delighted in these things. And when the psalmist could not come to these things and participate in these things, the psalmist ardently longed for these things. And that's because it was through these things that the psalmist approached his God. He did not view these things abstractly, tabernacles, house, courts, and altars abstractly. He viewed these things as God's things. God's house, God's tabernacles, God's courts, God's altars. And look at how he does that in the psalm. First, 
he says in verse 4, Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. And that word thy, or your, that word thy is a reference to the Lord of hosts. In verse 3, the Lord of hosts. And that name, Lord of hosts, appears in verses 1 and 3. And we all know, of course, that Lord, all capital letters, is the name Yahweh or Jehovah. The common Old Testament name, the holy name of God. And when you see that name, you think covenant. You think that's God's covenant name. You say, that is the name of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The Lord, all capital letters. That name means, as God told Moses, I am that I am. That's the name of the eternal, self-sufficient, independent, unchanging, faithful God. The name of the God who makes promises to his people. Promises to be faithful to them. Promises to bless them and to love them and to provide for them and to protect them and to save them and to bring them to heavenly glory. That's the God that the psalmist loves and therefore he loves that God's house. In addition, this is the Lord of hosts. And that word host refers to an army. In the Old Testament, Israel had an army. And the enemies of Israel had an army. The Philistines had an army. And the Moabites and the Syrians, they had their armies too. The Lord is the Lord of hosts. He has armies. In fact, all creatures are in his hand and he employs them as armies. We speak in Scripture of the host of heaven. That's usually a reference to the angels. But the Lord has all kinds of armies. The Lord can send an army of locusts or an army of flies or an army of frogs upon Egypt. The Lord can send an army of viruses upon the earth. The Lord can wipe out 175,000 men of the Assyrian army with one angel. The Lord can send an army of raindrops or an army of hailstones or an army of snowflakes to do his bidding. He is the Lord of hosts. Second, how amiable are thy tabernacles. And again, the thy, the your, refers to the Lord of hosts. They're amiable because they are his tabernacles. If they were not his tabernacles, they would not be amiable. Third, my soul longeth, yea, fainteth for the courts of the Lord. Again, not common courts, but the courts of Yahweh or the courts of Jehovah. And then fourth, thine altars... O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Again, thine are reference to the Lord, Yahweh or Jehovah. And notice, 
the psalmist calls him my king and my God. And that's significant because if the psalmist is David as we believe it is, David the king calls Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, he calls him his king and his God. David is the king of Israel. Jehovah is the king of David. And fifth, in connection with the tabernacle, the psalmist cries out for the living God. So we have the Lord, the Lord of hosts, my king and my God, and now we have the living God. And by the name living God, the psalmist contrasts Jehovah from the lifeless gods of the heathen. The idols have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have hands and they have feet, but they do not handle and they do not walk or go. They have to be carried from location to location. But Jehovah, the Lord, he is the living God, a God of boundless energy, a God of boundless activity, a God who does not merely exist, but he lives. He lives a life of blessedness and joy within his own being. The living God who shares his life with his creatures, who shares his life with the people whom he loves. And what we must remember, and what the psalmist did not forget was this, God and his ordinances of worship are inextricably linked. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot claim to long for one without at the same time longing for the other. The psalmist did not long for the house, the tabernacles, the courts, and the altars without at the same time longing for God. Without God, the house and the tabernacles and the courts and the altars were empty and meaningless. And when Israel, as she often did, when she fell away from God into gross apostasy and idolatry, then the temple or the tabernacle meant nothing. God's people could no longer go there to worship the Lord because there was an altar set up to a false god and therefore to go to those places was empty, meaningless, and even pernicious. A religious building today, a religious ritual today, a religious ordinance today is meaningless without God. At the same time, there is no knowledge of God, no fellowship with God, and no communion with God without the ordinances of God. God has joined the two together. And so God said to his people in the Old Testament to come to me, 
you must use the system that I have set up and ordained as described in the book of Leviticus, for example. You must come to me through the priests. You must use the sacrifices. You must come and ask the priest to offer the incense for you. Do not presume, God said, to come to me in any other way. Now, of course, there were exceptions. When the psalmist was away from the house of God and cut off from the public ordinances with no fault of his own, he was not altogether cut off from the fellowship of God. He could still pray, for example. He could still praise God. He could still lament. But he felt his need. He felt his urgent need for the ordinances and the sacrifices and the rituals. He did not despise them when he was off in exile and say, I have no need of those things. I don't care that I am not allowed to go to the temple or the tabernacle anymore. Neither may a child of God in the New Testament despise the church of God. And these things are, and must be, our desires also. We are not today interested in an earthly tabernacle. We're not concerned today about priests and altars and incense. We do not come today through gates to stand in a courtyard and to stand before a burning altar we do not need today to come to a physical location in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, we also recognize that inextricable link between God and his ordinances. Ordinarily, this is how God works. In the New Testament age, we meet God in his church. Not in a building necessarily, a building is not even necessary, but we meet God in the public gathering of his people, wherever that might be. And this God, as is described in Psalm 84, is the same God that we worship. The living God. The Lord of hosts is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the same God as was worshipped by the psalmist many, many years ago. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who makes the same promises to us. I will be your God, he says, and you shall be my people. He says to us, as he said to the Israelites of old, I love you. You are my chosen, beloved people. I sent my son Jesus to accomplish your salvation. I have sent my spirit into your hearts to give you life and peace. I have drawn you onto myself, into my presence, so that you might have fellowship with me and with your fellow saints. The form of that worship is different. But the essence of that worship 
is the same. The tabernacle and the priests and the altars and, and the incense have passed away because they are now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The slaughter of beasts with the sprinkling of the blood is no longer necessary because Jesus shed his blood on the cross for our sins. The burning of coals with the offering of incense is now obsolete because of Jesus' perfect intercession at God's right hand. What remains is the preaching of God's word, the singing of God's praises, the use of the sacraments, the fellowship with God and his people. And through those things, we enjoy privileges that the worshippers of the Old Testament did not enjoy in such measure. In exile, the psalmist's heart longs after the worship of God and therefore longs after God himself. He begins in verse 1, How amiable, how amiable are thy tabernacles. Notice, beloved, this is not a cold, detached dogmatic statement. It's not this. The tabernacles of God are lovely. That's a statement. But it's this, an exclamation from a homesick heart. How amiable are thy tabernacles. And that word how tells us that he could not adequately express how amiable they were. How good they are. How delightful they are. How sweet. How pleasant. How wonderful these things are to me. They're amiable. And that word means either lovely, thus expressing what they were to the psalmist, or beloved in that the psalmist loves them. How lovely or how beloved are thy tabernacles. And that's where he begins. And having expressed that, he then allows his mind to dwell upon the details of God's house. And his mind travels, as it were, through the house of God and rests upon various aspects, the tabernacles, the courts, the altars, and the house. He thinks about the activities that are performed there. He contemplates the priests and their work, the sacrifices and the incense, the fellow worshippers who make the journey to celebrate Jehovah's feasts there, and he longs to be there. Blessed, he says in verse 4, are they that dwell in thy house. They will still be praising thee. Why are Jehovah's tabernacles lovely? It is not because, as I said, of any outward beauty in the architecture. It is not because the structure of the tabernacle is particularly pleasant to behold. 
It is because of the God whose tabernacles they are. It is because of the worship that takes place there. And that's true also for us. We do not say how amiable is Conra Naguilaga Hall. This is called Conra Naguilaga Hall. This hall, which we have been using for over a decade, is not particularly lovely. It's quite plain, but it serves our purpose. It's quite ordinary with no earthly grandeur, but it meets our needs. And when we are not here, it is not the house of God. It's not the house of God on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday. It becomes the house of God for a short period of time on Sundays when we are here. And not because we make it the house of God, but because God is pleased in his mercy and grace to speak to us here through his word, to meet with us here, to inhabit our praises in our singing, and thus it becomes, in that sense, the house of God. If we were allowed to gather together in someone's living room in a private home, that living room would become, for that time, the house of God. Nor do we say, how amiable is the table on which we rest the lectern. We've had services here and elsewhere where the minister rested his notes on a box or in a couple of boxes. We've had services where the minister had a music stand. Those things don't matter as long as the word is preached. Because God especially is present in the preaching of his word. And if the word is faithfully preached, the word is explained and expounded, the building in which the worship takes place is irrelevant. If the worship is elaborate or lively or energetic, but not faithful to God's word, then that worship might be impressive to some people, but it is not amiable. It is, in fact, detestable. The psalmist would not say, how amiable are thy tabernacles if Baal were worshipped there. When unfaithful priests corrupted the worship of God, the people mourned and the people lamented but they did not rejoice in such idolatry and wickedness. In a grandiose cathedral where the mass is celebrated and where the rosary is recited to Mary, we do not say how amiable, we say how horrible. In an energetic worship service where Christ is not preached, where a man is directed to trust in his own works or in his own decision for Christ, we do not say how amiable, we say how detestable. 
The psalmist delighted in Jehovah's tabernacles because of the altars where he saw his sins blotted out, which was to him a picture of the coming Messiah. The altars show us that the worship of the psalmist at the tabernacle was Christ-centered. Our worship is also, in that sense, Christ-centered. We delight no longer in, a, in an altar. We delight in the worship of the church through hearing the preaching of Christ to us. And Christ speaks to us through the preaching and says to us, I have made perfect satisfaction on the cross for your sins. I rose again for your justification. I give you life and peace by my Holy Spirit. Come, therefore, and worship in thanksgiving for the salvation that I have given to you. And this desire of the psalmist was intense. In fact, it's more than a desire, it's a longing. That's why we have as the theme, longing. A desire is something you would like to have. You might say, I would like to go on holiday. Such a thing is pleasant. But you are not concerned, at least not overly concerned, if your desire is denied to you. It's a desire, nothing more than that. A longing is something much stronger than a desire. A longing is something that you really, really want. Something that you have set your heart on. Something for which you yearn. Something without which you would struggle to be happy or content. A longing or a yearning expresses the deepest desire of your heart. And verse 2, the psalmist expresses his longing or his yearning. My soul longeth, yea, fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Notice a number of things here, beloved. First, the psalmist speaks of a longing. My soul longeth. And the word there, rendered longeth, has the idea of growing pale. It is to lose color. It is to fade away. When speaking of the sun or the moon, it is to be eclipsed. Think of a lovesick person. He pines away. He cannot eat. He cannot sleep. He cannot be happy. He is restless until his desire is fulfilled. Such a longing the psalmist had for God and for his courts for public worship at the tabernacle. Second, he says, yea, fainteth. And this Hebrew word means to be at an end. If someone's soul is fainting or at an end, it is exhausted. 
Its strength is used up. It languishes. It wastes away. It fails. The psalmist says, I have come to the end of myself because of the longing of my soul, because I long for the house of God. This idea, this longing, this yearning consumes me, and I cannot find any satisfaction elsewhere. Longing, fainting, and third, the psalmist crieth out. Longing and fainting are internal activities of the soul. Crying is how that internal desire comes to expression. If the psalmist had been with others, he would have expressed himself in words, in groans, in audible sobs. Oh, I am so miserable because I cannot be in the house of God. Oh, when will I appear again before God? Oh, will someone please help me come to worship my God? And fourth, this desire, this longing, this yearning includes the whole of his being. Notice how he combines words in verse 2. My soul, my heart, my flesh. This then, beloved, is no half-hearted wish. Not a take it or leave it kind of thing. His whole heart, his whole soul, with his flesh, cry out for God and the ordinances of public worship. The heart is the spiritual center of a person. The source of his thoughts, his desires, his ambitions, his emotions. The soul is basically the same thing as the heart. The flesh here is not the sinful flesh because the sinful flesh, the old man within us, does not desire to worship God. In fact, he hinders us from worshiping God. The flesh here is the physical body. The psalmist's body is involved in his longing for the house of God. His tongue, as it were, longs to sing God's praises. His hands are itching to lift themselves up in worship to God. His feet are waiting to run to the tabernacle as soon as he can. And so there's no lack of will on the psalmist's part, but simply the lack of opportunity. And as soon as the opportunity comes, he will speed himself to the courts of his God. And then finally, the psalmist expresses a holy envy or a holy jealousy in verse 3. He makes a comparison between his own situation and the bird's. He speaks of two birds, both little birds, the sparrow and the swallow. In his mind's eye, he sees these little birds fluttering and chirping and building their nests. Their house or their nest are built in God's altars. Yea, verse 3, Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. 
The meaning is not, beloved, that the birds are building their nests in the altar of burnt offering or in the altar of incense, which would be far too dangerous a place for a bird to build a nest. But the idea is they're building their nests as close to those things as they can. And the point is, the sparrows and the swallows are nearer to God than he is. And he therefore envies the sparrows and the swallows. In Psalm 55, David says, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then I would fly away and be at rest. Lo, then I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness. In this psalm, the psalmist thinks to himself, Oh, that I were a sparrow or a swallow. Then I would build my nest near the altars of my God. This is an expression of love. Love sickness for God. This is a desire, a longing, a yearning to be near God. As near God as it was possible to be in the Old Testament. And this, I trust, is also our desire, is also the yearning or longing of our hearts. This last year or so has been difficult. From March 2020 onwards, there have been lockdowns, and we have been unable to meet here for weeks and months on end. COVID-19 and the restrictions imposed upon us have tried our patience. We have experienced the loss of our freedoms for what the government has called the common good. We have been isolated from friends and family. We have been unable to travel. We have been perhaps worried about becoming sick. But the worst thing for us has not been the inability to see friends and family. It has not been the restrictions in travel. It has not been the fear of sickness. It has been that the restrictions on gatherings have included restrictions on public worship, which meant that we could not book this hall for our meetings or a hotel room somewhere or even meet in someone's private home. And that situation continued for several months. We have been thankful though, for the technology that we did have, because every week throughout this whole period of lockdown, we were able to hear God's word preached to us, albeit over a computer screen. And we were able to some degree to have fellowship to chat afterwards on that computer program. And that was good. And that was necessary for a time. That was a desert in the oasis of this world. But that is not normal. And that is not ideal. And we ought not to think to ourselves, I like that better. And now comes the test. 
The test comes in light of this word of God. Can we say with the psalmist, how amiable are thy tabernacles? Can we say that and mean it from our hearts? Because now it means we no longer get to sit in our comfortable chair at home with a cup of tea as we watch the preacher on a screen. And that's nice. It has been nice for some people. And can we say and mean it? Because now we have to get up earlier in the morning and get organized and walk to this location and perhaps get wet or drive or take a bus to get here for the worship services. And can we say this and mean it as well because now it means we have to mix with people again. And perhaps because of all of this isolation over the past months, our social skills have diminished and we have got used to being alone. And perhaps we have liked being alone. And then there's the danger, there's the temptation to say, well, I'll just stay at home. I'll just turn on the live broadcast. I'll just watch a YouTube video sermon, but I'll not go to the worship services. Then our confession is not the same as the confession of the psalmist. Then we have forgotten the necessity of public worship for our spiritual welfare, for the welfare of the body and for the other members of the, of the church, and ultimately for the glory of God. And so here's the question to you from this word of God this morning. Do your heart, soul, and flesh cry out for the living God? Do they cry out because you want to hear Jesus Christ and his salvation in the public worship of God's name? They must. And by God's grace, I trust that they do. Why does the psalmist long for God's house? And the answer is, as we have seen, because he longs for God himself. The house, its courts, its tabernacles, its altars, is a means to an end. If God is not there, the house and all the rest are worthless. And the same is true for us. If God is not present with us, our coming to Conrad Nguilaga Hall is a waste of time. But just as God's people could not come to God in the Old Testament except through priests and sacrifices, so today we cannot come to God except through Jesus Christ. He is the great high priest foreshadowed and prefigured in the Old Testament. He is our Savior in the New Testament, and in the preaching of his truth, we hear him. In addition, the psalmist describes the inhabitants of God's house in verse 4. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house, they will be still praising thee. 
That's the occupation, beloved, of those who live in, as it were, who dwell in God's house, praising him. And that's why we want to be here. We want to praise him. And that's something we could not do well with the online worship. We could not praise him. We could not sing. Because singing requires us to be together in one place. Singing is difficult to do if you're singing from different locations through one computer screen, as it were. Not impossible, but difficult to do. And we have desired to sing, to praise God. Why? Because he has saved us, because he is worthy, because we are thankful. And the ultimate goal then is that we might dwell in God's house forever. Not in a church building, but we desire to be near to God and worshiping together in the house of God, in the company of God's people, is a foretaste of something far better and far sweeter. It is to dwell in God's house forever in heaven. And that joy will be ours, beloved, because Jesus Christ died on the cross to purchase that for us. And then our soul and our heart and even our flesh will be perfectly satisfied. We will dwell in God's house, in God's presence forever. Amen.